the task old England is out to perform with Russia and France to assist. And some help now and then from the brave Belgian men. And it's this to defeat the male of fish. It's a terrible task. And we had to combine, but together... Hello, welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. So currently I'm in a series looking at two of Barbara Tuckman's uh, works of history, The Guns of August and The Proud Tower, published by the Library of America. Uh, all the books in this series are, are published by them, as you probably know by now, if you've been following me. Um, so if you're just joining this podcast now, this is the fourth in a in a five-part series exploring the guns of august so um yeah this episode covers we'll we'll look at chapters 16 through 19 um which really covers i guess uh allied or i guess entente disasters um in the later part of august of 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 1914. of course uh the overall big picture here is that the schlieffen plan did not work Right. But uh, that's not really clear at this point that it's it's a failure. In fact, um, uh, in France, uh, we see French armies retreating uh, rapidly towards towards Paris. And uh, as a kind of an added bonus to the Schlieffen plan, this was never really part of the initial Schlieffen plan, was the defeat of the Russians at the Battle of Tannenberg uh, at the end of, of August of, of 1914. Um, uh, you know, the original Schlieffen plan was was kind of resting on this idea of this of this Russian steamroller, or at least the way Tuckman talks about it, um, which was kind of the philosophy at the time is that, yeah, the Russians would take a long time to mobilize. They were they didn't have the equipment and the material that the other great powers did, but they're just their manpower to win out. And, and that seems to come from 19th century wars with Russia, like the, the victories um over Turkey in particular, right? I think the, you know, the the Crimean War might have been another one, but that really wasn't a victory, clear victory for Russia uh, either. But, uh, you know, the the more recent war, I, I think one interesting theme that's more in the subtext of this book is how, you know, outdated military thinking is. And, and of course, if you study military history, you see many examples of this, how in the Civil War, people were still fighting like the Napoleonic Wars because that's what they were trained to fight. Um, you know, European thinking was still rooted maybe more in the mid-19th century in their military tactics. But, of course, Russia was defeated in, this is the point I want to make, in Russia was defeated in 1905 by Japan, right? Really uh, a more, you know, the ability to quickly mobilize, the ability to really bring equipment and men to the field at the right place at the right time could achieve a decisive victory even given Russia's manpower. Uh, and that was the fate in in, for Russia in 1905, devastating defeat by um, Japan. And that's what happens essentially at Tannenberg, too, is that the Germans were able to put together a major victory. Now, this did cost the Schlieffen plan a little bit because it sounds like a couple divisions got moved over from the Western Front to, to engage the Russian troops in Tannenberg. And that may have made the difference. Uh, at least Tuckman leaves that open as an open question. Perhaps that shifting of a few divisions was just enough to to prevent the Schlieffen plan from fully being effective. But at the time, it looked like you know the French were retreating, uh, you know, out of Belgium and and into France. French territory was being taken over. Paris seemed to be in sight. In fact, I think Chapter Twenty, 
which we'll look at in the next episode, is actually called Paris, the front is Paris. So that's how, obviously, how close they got. The Battle of the Marne changes all of that, um, which is not really the purview of this book. It's just alluded to as, you know, it's set up because that, that happens, I think, in September of, of 1914. So anyways, yeah, we just, we just got a handful of chapters here, but they all, uh, with the exception of one, really point to uh, quite a disaster for, for the Allies. Um, so anyways, let's just quickly talk about those. I don't think this will be a long episode. Um, and anyway, so chapter 16 is just called Tannenberg, so it's going to cover that, that battle. Um, the way she sort of starts it out is... is Basically, with Russian feelings of disaster looming, I mean that's uh, the heart of of this chapter. How Russians were much less confident in their abilities than some of the other Entente powers, particularly France. Um, for instance, she writes, "Far to the rear, a sense of disaster pervaded the Russian high command. As early as August twenty fourth, Shurtlemonovif, the war minister who had not bothered to build arms factories because he did not believe in firepower." Uh, wrote another general, quote, in God's name, issue orders for gathering up the rifles, end quote. So right away they saw the problem with this this kind of uh, steamroller theory of, of Russian victory. Um, but nevertheless, it was sort of surprise. It was a surprise German victory, even even it seemed for the Germans. Right. It wasn't according to plans. Right. And that's a major theme of this whole book is nothing really went according to the plans. And even when it did. The plans unleashed certain forces that that kind of led the war in ways that no one no one planned. So even you know where the Germans were successful, the Schlieffen plan went in ways that you know it followed paths or or threads that that took the war out of the control of the planners. Um, now the the details of the battle aren't that important, I think, for 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 this podcast. But uh, what's you know, at the time, it wasn't seen as the as the victory as the, as the disaster it was for for the Russians. In some ways, you could say Russia lost the war right here, and the next two years were just hanging on. And then you had the Russian Revolution, right, knocking Russia out of the war, essentially by 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 early uh, nineteen seventeen. But for all intents and purposes, they weren't a major player, at least in, against the Germans. Um, but there was another victory over Austria at the same time, which sort of seemed in the in the Russian mind and the Russian leadership as maybe a balanced. That was, of course, the big enemy in the war. They were the they they were the target of the initial declaration of war. But I guess why this defeat? Um, essentially, Tuckman makes the argument, which I think is you you saw coming or you see coming if you read in is that poor organization and poor leadership is the major reason for the failure of this. And you actually see the beginnings of calls for peace that early um, in, in the war. Again, we're reminded that many people thought this would be a short war. Um, you know, of course, all sides had confidence in their victory, but also in their mentality was that this is going to be a short war. This is going to be compared to, I think, what's going on in France, where uh, I think I mentioned this a little bit last time, too, how... Um, you know, or maybe it comes up here, maybe it's in my notes, but how German victory and French defeat both made the war kind of in, in, inevitably prolonged because once the Germans were fighting on French territory, they couldn't very well surrender, you know, because they're winning, right? They're, 
they're they're close to Paris, right? They're fighting out in frontier. Germany's not being conquered. On the other hand, France, by losing, you know, had to fight to take that back. Their whole ethos of the war, their whole justification for it was this revenge idea, this take back Alsace, take back last territory, you know, don't surrender more to to Germany. So both defeat and failure entrenched both sides into a long war. But maybe the Russians were a little bit more um, flexible on this idea. Um, but certainly this ended the hopes of a Russian steamroller victory, that, that manpower alone wasn't going to be enough in this age of mechanized warfare. And, and really the only good news for the Allies, I, I keep seeing the Allies, uh, for the Entente powers, the only really good news for the Entente powers was the movement of some troops away from from the Western Front to the East, which may have played a role you know, in, in saving, saving Paris you know, in, in the next month. So anyways, that's all to really say about Tannenberg. Uh, of course, it's one of the epic battles of world history that, that, that we should be aware of. Uh, next, we have chapter 17, The Flames of Louvain, um, which uh, basically is about the war in the, in the, in the Western Front. But it's, it's actually almost... Uh, this and the next chapter, 17 and 18, almost serve as side discussions, or necessary side discussions, setting up uh, the, the war in terms of its ideas and then chap- like its philosophy and the attitudes of the different belligerents. That happens in chapter 17. And also a really key idea, which is like German barbarism. Yeah, like if you think of World War One era propaganda from from like America or, or the UK, you've seen these propaganda posters. You know, they always show the Germans as this like gorilla with this club. You know, violating or raping Belgium. You had, of course, reports of the the, the famous glue factories, right? This idea that Belgians were being processed into glue for the for the war for it. You know, there's being mass murdered. This actually becomes important because this this proved to be false. The the extent of German crimes against the Belgian people. They were there, but they were often exaggerated in the media. And then when you got similar reports coming out of World War II, which were correct, uh, they weren't as believed. So so I guess that's, that's a little bit of a warning. I don't know if that was Tuckman's point here, but there's a little bit of a warning about exaggerating the viciousness of your enemy for short-term propaganda gains because it, it makes the public insensitive to, to real... Uh, Crime. When you don't know truth, it's like it's almost like a, a fake news kind of argument uh, that if you have too much fake news, then people aren't going to believe the real news. Right? So, um, yeah, this this kind of deals with different ideas about the war, really this concept of the national soul she gets into and how, you know, it's it's so baffling for people in our century, perhaps, to think back on World War One and see like, you know, why did people fight for so long over such nonsense, you know, seeming such little gains. Um, but these were seen as wars for national soul. The war was a reflection of nationalism. It was, it was part of, it became part of national identity. It became essential to the national identity. Um, now, H.G. Wells is mentioned here uh, as someone who was beginning to comment on this um, and, and maybe plays a role in this idea of German nationalism as this, this very, very insidious evil that almost has to be purged uh, quote mr hd wells was one of the first kind the enemy he announced in the press of august 4th was german imperialism and militarism the monstrous vanity begot in 1817 the victory of germany of blood and iron flag way wagging teutonic clip clippingisms 
would mean the permanent enthronement of the war god over all human affairs. The defeat of Germany may, Mr. Wells did not say will, open the way to disarmament and peace throughout the world. End quote. Which, of course, reminds us of Wilson later on. And Wilson is someone we're going to have to get to in the next part. I, I'm not going to... Obviously, this book doesn't get to Wilson and the Americans. There's just a brief mention of, of the U.S. in the chapter on the sea. But there's a essay she wrote, which I'm going to include in the next episode, which is like why we fought or something, which is really about why America got into the war. Um, but this idea of a war to end all wars, you know, if we defeat German militarism, this will usher in this era of peace. So this is a really important chapter. I mean, I actually think if this... If you were just to read a couple chapters of this book, I think some of the plan stuff is very important. And this chapter, this chapter may be the most uh, crucial because it really gets into the heads of these different nationalisms. Um, but the biggest change here, the biggest thing she's focused on here, and it's implied in the chapter title, The Flames of Louvain, which is the changing views of Germany, right? How Germany goes from being the country of Goethe and, 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 and Beethoven and Mozart, Schubert, um, to this image of Germany as as a terrorist nation, right? Now, that's, of course, well-deserved in, in the 1940s, 1930s and 1940s. I'm not sure it's as well-deserved. At least the reputation Germany got in the First World War is as deserved. Um, and not everyone bought it, right? There were many German sympathizers, people of German descent in the United States who didn't believe all this propaganda either. But nevertheless, there was the terror in Belgium. And there was attacks on civilians and there was burning of fields and the destruction of buildings and there was there was something we can call the terror in belgium german use of terrorism and war um and this comes from clausewitz clausewitz thought this was legitimate uh, way to win a war you know I, I think clausewitz shows up a lot in this book rightfully so because he's so much in the heads of the of the major planners so the focus here is the august 24th burning of of Louvain. um yeah, and I think what's important about this chapter and this whole idea is this theme of ideological entrenchment and the way the media and reports and, and the, from the ground changed people's views of Germany and made people think, eventually like, agree with Wells, at least on the Entente side, to agree with Wells that, I don't know so much in Russia, you know, the Russian public, you know, I don't, at the time they weren't the newspaper reading type mostly there's mostly a peasant economy but in france britain united states you know where the public did you know read this stuff you know the image of germany changed and the word transformed to how people saw germany um yeah ideological entrenchment um so that's it so it kind of parallels the entrenchment of the war itself that's what i wrote down here you know, we see the entrenchment on the battlefield eventually after Marne, you know, where the, the trenches get built. That's not really the theme that Tuckman gets into. It's, it's just on the horizon, right? It's anyone reading this book is thinking about that. But also at the same time, there's this ideological and intellectual hardening of the sides. And I think that's a, a really, really great discovery she makes here. And I think it's an important part of the book. So um, I think it's important. It's on all sides. It's not just towards, you know, and it's all for different reasons. But at the heart of it is this idea we cannot lose this war. Uh, where does that come from? That, that great, I think, mystery that we have looking at World War One. 
of why did it go on for so long at such costs for, for, for nothing? Well, you know, they, they thought it was for something. And it was the life of, of, of the nation. And they thought they were trying to save civilization in many cases. So anyways, that's chapter 17, a really good one. Again, again, that's the one to read if you just need to, can only read a couple of these. So next we have uh, Blue Water Blockade and the Great Neutral. So this is about the naval war, early on the war, and the United States. So the Great Neutral um, is, you know, kind of a battle with the U.S. over their side. The U.S. is trying to be neutral. This was Wilson's policy early on. Uh, Wilson was, of course, elected in 1912. He became president in early 1913. Um, the British controlled the sea. So this is actually a repeat of history almost, right? So we've seen this story before if you studied early American history, early Republican history with, uh, um, you know, the Napoleonic Wars. And the struggle of Adams. One of the great achievements of the Adams presidency was getting, was, was staying out of the Napoleonic Wars, right? And you could even say that of Jefferson, Jefferson less so because there was that kind of proxy war that that emerged and there was shooting and things like that and problems with, um, you know, forced enlistments in the Navy and things like that. But Jefferson also believed strongly in this kind of neutrality. But how do you maintain neutrality when you have these two belligerents at the sea? Right now, at least in the Napoleonic Wars, the French seem to have a, a fighting chance at the seas. Germany didn't seem to have that. Uh, and so Tuckerman gets into that a little bit, the naval parity and the different power at that, the, the, the power, the risk of the power of the British Navy, but also their risk aversionness. So one, I guess this is maybe a, a, a tiny mystery of the war, or at least something that needs to be explained, is why wasn't there the huge naval battle? So much of the buildup to the war was this dreadnought arms race, right? This fighting over naval power. And Germany was seemingly catching up with at least the big dreadnoughts, right? You can actually see the charts of the large battleships. You know, still Britain had way more tonnage uh, in their in their blue water fleet, but Germany was catching up with the best ships, right? The dreadnoughts. So, um, you know, there was this naval arms race was a risk, and it was a reason, you know, for British-German animosity before the war. Um, and German had, Germany had these naval ambitions prior to the war, but still they weren't unable to challenge British dominance at the sea, so they never really sailed out to confront them head on. And the British, why didn't they try to seek out and destroy the German fleets? Well, they were risk averse. That's the interesting thing. It's like so much of British policy and power, their colonial empire, their economic power rested on the dominance of the seas and their naval power, so they didn't want to risk it. So there, there was a risk aversion among the, the British admirals. So they focus again on protecting the sea lanes. So where does this go? Well, you know, it goes into submarine warfare. And that's ultimately what pulls the U.S. into the war. That in, in Wilson's, um, well, I don't know. We'll, we'll talk about Wilson next time, I guess. Um, so that's in this chapter. And then about this great neutral. Well, you know, Wilson's, you know, had this policy of neutrality, but it was difficult to maintain because the British controlled the seas. Um, and, you know, Wilson himself had this struggle. Tuckman describes it as like a, there was a legal but not felt neutrality, you know, like legally under law, under policy, the United States was neutral, but no one really felt the U.S. was truly being neutral 
in the war. It was kind of a, it was a bit of a facade. It was a, it was like, a, a, you know, no one, it didn't pass a smell test, right? That the U.S. was not really truly being neutral. And that's because they really didn't have the option to arm Germany. Britain controlled the seas, right? So it, it put the U.S. kind of inevitably into this track to, to, to enter. In, if they did enter the war, it would be on the side of the Entente. So another kind of unintended consequence of, of war planning and, and military cultures, entrenched military cultures. In this case, it was this, this risk aversion and this focus on protecting sea lanes by the British Navy. So I think that's enough to say about that chapter. Then we get a relatively long chapter called Retreat, which I didn't write down many notes for because there's not that much to say about this chapter. It basically involves French armies um, and French people fleeing uh, the German armies in northern France. And this is all going to set up the, the, you know, the fight for Paris, the Battle of the Marne, and the other events of, of, early, of September 1914. But I think Tuckman does a really good job of, of showing like the horror and the, the chaos and the, 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 this, this kind of panic that spread throughout the French people and the French military uh, during these, this, this horrible week in which defeat seemed uh, right around the, 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 the corner. There was rail congestion. There was... Uh, Mixed orders, units bumping into each other. You had the arrival of the BEF, which confused things even more. So it became kind of a really messy retreat as well. Uh, quote, they were railroad, railed to Amiens through Paris, where they were switched to the Northern Railroads, already congested by the demands of the BEF. Although French railroad movements had not been polished by the best brains of the German staff to the frantic perfection of the Germans, the transfer was managed quickly, if not smoothly, by means of the French equivalent for German... Thoroughness called Le Système D, in which the D stands for, say, du Bollier, needing to muddle through or to work it out somehow. Uh, Monterey's troops were already detraining de at Amiens on August 26th, but it was not soon enough. The front was falling back faster than the new army could be gotten to position, and on the far end of the line, von Kluck's pursuit had already caught up with the British. If there could have been an observer in a balloon high enough to view the whole French frontier from the Vos to the Lille, he would have seen a rim of red, the pantaloons rouge of 70 French divisions, and near the left end, the tiny wedge of khaki, those four British divisions, end quote. So this is all setting up the, the battle for Paris and, the, and eventually the Battle of the Marne. So it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pretty moving chapter, but there's not much to say about it other than it's kind of getting us to those final days of, of August and the final chapters of the book. So that's all I'm going to say. As I said, this would be, a sh as I promised, this would be a short episode. Um, now, in the next final episode on the Guns of August, I'll, I'll give my final thoughts about it, um, my final summary. Um, there's only a couple chapters to talk about, but I, I do want to mention this essay she wrote. Um, I think around the time that she wrote this book. I can, I'll look up exactly when she wrote it, but it's called How We Entered World War I, which is really looking at 1917 and, and Wilson's decision-making and the different forces, uh, that the different reasons the United States entered the war. And I think that's best talked about in the context of the guns of August, not the Proud Tower. So I'll do that as well. And then I'll, I'll do so. I guess I haven't been doing this much lately, but I think I'm going to go back. 
to that, which is kind of listings like the major themes and, and topics as kind of a, a review at the end of my examination of a book. So uh, that's it. So um, anyways, thanks as always for listening. I'll see you next time with my conclusion to uh, well, the conclusion of my review and my thoughts on the Guns of August by Barbara Tuckman. Thanks for listening. When we wound up the walk on the line.